This is Taiwan Insider, a weekly news roundup brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Here's your week in a minute. Taipei Mayor Ko Wenzhe has announced that he's setting up a new political party, the Taiwanese People's Party, on August 6th. Many say it's a prelude to a presidential run next year. The KMT has officially named Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu as its 2020 presidential candidate. After the announcement, Han gave a speech promising a better economy and peaceful cross-strait ties. China has stopped allowing its citizens to visit Taiwan independent of a tour group, saying that the move is due to the state of cross-strait ties. Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council says the ban violates a cross-strait travel agreement. Hong Kong students in Kaohsiung have collected second-hand scooter helmets to send to protesters back home. The drive began after a recent mob attack at a Hong Kong subway station. Third grader Ding Xiehe won at the 2019 Japan International Mental Arithmetic and Mathematical Competition, solving 47 out of 50 problems in two minutes. And that's your Week in a Minute. We now turn to our top story. Taipei Mayor Ken Wenzhe is going to set up a new political party, the Taiwanese People's Party. He made the announcement on Thursday. Ken met with the press to announce his new party. It's named after Taiwan's first political party, which was set up in 1927 during Japanese rule. Ken shares a birthday with the person who founded the original party, Zhang Weishui, and he's planning to establish the party on their birthday, August 6th. Now, many believe this means Ko will run for president, although he has not announced that yet. Presidential candidates have to register by September 17th. Ko's hoping his party can win 10 legislative seats in the elections in January. Now, some people are saying that he might team up with Foxconn founder Terry Guo in the elections. Uh, if they do team up and enter the race, that would be a huge challenge for President Tsai Ing-wen in her run to be re-elected. And also for the KMT's Han Guoyu. And this week, Han Guoyu was officially nominated as the presidential candidate for the Kuomintang. Let's take a look at what he said at the party congress. These are Han fans, or fans of Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu. Many of them have shown fanatical support for the new political star, creating a Han wave that has enabled him to become the presidential candidate for one of Taiwan's biggest parties, the Kuomintang. At the KMT's National Congress on Sunday, Han is dressed in his usual blue button-down shirt. He bows to the crowd and thanks them. Han presents himself as a man of the people, and that's integral to his charisma. Han shakes hands with KMT chairperson Udun Yi and bows. Physical gestures of humility. He often mentions the time he was unemployed for 17 years. His story and style sets him apart from the political elite which his followers are tired of. At the party's National Congress, Han speaks about his vision for Taiwan. This is a sacred presidential election. It's not just for a personal victory for Han Guoyu, and it's not just for our Kuomintang. It's for our country, the Republic of China. We need to wholeheartedly create a safe Taiwan where the people are rich, a Taiwan miracle, an economic miracle. Han is a charismatic speaker. He was elected in Kaohsiung on a promise that he'd make people rich. Now his presidential campaign is starting with the same theme. His reference to safety is an attempt to ease fears about the threat of China. Han also has many supporters overseas. He urged them to call or write to their political leaders so that other countries may know about Taiwan's situation. 
and is working to mobilize his fans and unite the KMT. Former President Ma Ying-jeou attended the party congress as did primary contenders Eric Chu and Wang Jingping. But his main rival, Foxconn founder Terry Goh, was not there. Now, with the election season underway here in Taiwan, many people are watching China to see if they will do anything that will impact the elections here in Taiwan. Now, just this past week, they announced that they're going to stop allowing individual Chinese tourists to visit Taiwan separate from tour groups. As of August 1st, Chinese tourists must be part of a tour group if they want to travel to Taiwan. Beijing says this is due to current cross-strait relations. China has already reduced Chinese tourist visits to Taiwan since President Tsai came to office in 2016. Before the latest ban, there were slightly more people coming as individual tourists than as part of a group, so there could be a slight economic impact. Now, there are two takeaways as I see it. I think the first thing is is that the political impact could actually be much larger than the economic impact. China is trying to show that they're, they're against President Tsai, right? That's right. And I think the second thing is is that um, I think uh, this reduces the ability for people in China and people in Taiwan to interact naturally as they could as, you know, coming here as uh, separate from a tour group. That's true. Well, you know, China has been giving President Tsai a hard time during her term in office. But the U.S., on the other hand, has shown much support. Could the two superpowers be taking sides in Taiwan's elections? Well, I asked former U.S. National Security Advisor Steve Yates about this. He gives us his perspective on what kind of candidate the U.S. would prefer to win Taiwan's election. Now, Yates is a strong supporter of Taiwan, and he's the CEO of a political risk consultancy called DC International Advisory. Let's have a look at this interview. Well, do you think that, you know, since President Tsai is uh, close to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and um, the other candidate from the KMT is seen to be close to China Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, China, pro-China media gives them lots of coverage. Do you think that um, the U.S. would prefer a candidate like Tsai that's closer to the U.S. than China? Well, I don't think there's any question that if the U.S. government is looking at its own interests, if... If the description is accurate, that you've got a choice of a candidate that is leaning more China and sort of skeptical of the U.S. Now we'll have the full interview available for you on the Taiwan Today playlist on our YouTube channel. Now on to what else is new this month. It's Ghost Month Mm -hmm. beginning today, August 1st. Now, Andrew, do you do anything to observe Ghost Month except eating guai guai? (laughs) (laughs) And Ali, I don't eat them. I put them in important places. Okay, okay. (laughs) Actually, no. What about you? I don't either. I mean, I, I believe there are ghosts, but I don't believe they have power over us. I believe in the spiritual world. I like that. Yeah. I like that. So I'm not too too freaked out. (laughs) But a lot of people actually do observe Ghost Month and we'll be telling you about that. What Ghost Month is and how it affects people in Taiwan on today's Taiwan Explained. Today on Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you what Ghost Month is and how it affects people in Taiwan. All right, Natalie, we have 60 seconds on the clock. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Go. Many Taiwanese believe that on the first day of the seventh lunar month, the gates of hell open 
bring hungry ghosts to roam the earth. They look for food, fun, and even souls. These are ghosts who did not receive a proper burial or who have been neglected by their families, so they're hungry. On the 15th, companies offer food and joss paper to appease the Good Brothers. People call them Good Brothers to not offend them. There are also many taboos, such as do not go swimming and Don't get married or buy a home. These moves could be dangerous. But if you don't believe in ghosts, you could get a good deal this month. There are also many festivals. The most elaborate is in Jilong on the 14th, where water lanterns invite spirits to come on land to feast. And the month ends in Elan with a ghost grappling festival where people race up greasy poles to catch food and a flag. That's how they feed and send off lingering ghosts in peace. Perfect. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Natalie. And that's today's Taiwan Explained. Up next, Taiwan by Number. Each week, we share with you a facet of life from Taiwan by way of some numbers. Now, this week, Natalie, we're going to be talking about bats. Right. That's right. These are, of course, the flying bats, not baseball bats, and you'll see why in just a second. Now, recently, the southern city of Kaohsiung has been fighting an outbreak of dengue fever, uh, which is a disease, a very serious disease, which is transmitted by mosquitoes. And of course, they're fumigating the city, but they're also coming up with some natural ways to get rid of mosquitoes. And so one of those ways is to use bats. Again, that's cool. not baseball bats. <laughs> those, those don't work on mosquitoes. So my question for you is, uh, a very popular bat is called the East Asian bat. How many mosquitoes does the East Asian bat need to eat in one night in order to feel full? Hmm, a thousand. A thousand. Okay. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if very they got rid guess. of a thousand? <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have a look at this report for that answer. Taiwan is home to dozens of species of bats. You won't just find them in the wild. People raise them, too. These flat boxes are actually homes for bats. And the reason why people are raising them is so they'll eat the mosquitoes. Ever since they've been here, there have been fewer mosquitoes. The Bat Association of Taiwan says that bats hunt for food at the same time that the vector mosquitoes for dengue fever come out. There's a spike in people getting bitten by Asian tiger mosquitoes between 5 and 8 p.m. And the first peak in activity for East Asian bats is between 6 to 8 p.m. They have to eat about 1,200 mosquitoes every night. That's what prompted longtime conservationist NPP lawmaker Lin Yukai to visit schools, teaching kids about the role bats play in epidemic prevention and showing them how to make bat houses. Balconies and outdoor walkways are best, and they should be about two meters above the ground. They need good ventilation and sunlight for about 40 to 50 percent of the day. In the U.S., they've used bats to help stop the spread of the Zika virus. Lin says that in Kaohsiung, raising bats can reduce the need for fumigation, which will not only save money, it will also reduce the possibility that mosquitoes will become resistant. Okay, so very interesting, huh? Mm -hmm. Now, before the report, I asked you if you knew how many mosquitoes an East Asian bat has to eat in one night in order to feel full. You said a thousand. It's a big number. Let's have a look at the answer. Oh, wow. They need more than a thousand. 
something. That's right. And they can eat that many. That's awesome. Isn't that amazing? That is so cool. So actually, you know, because I thought this was so cool and so such a great way to get rid of mosquitoes, I started to dig in deeper and do some more research on bats in Taiwan. I found some fascinating statistics and some very cute pictures. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. So first of all, Taiwan has 80 different types of land mammals. Okay. 80 different types of land mammals. Of those 80 types of land mammals, how many of those species are species of bat? 20. 20. Okay. No, I sure. think that's too many. 10. 10? Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> okay, 10. So have a look at the answer. Oh, I was close to the first time. Five. So actually, many. that's almost many. half of all of the land mammals what? in Taiwan. Taiwan actually has a very high diversity of bats. That's cool. Yes. And that picture that you saw there, very cute, huh? Mm -hmm. That is actually a Formosan golden bat. So I want to ask you a couple questions about that. All right. First of all, do you want to see a Formosan golden bat laughing? Sure. All right. Have a look at this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, How do you know they're laughing? He, he might not be laughing, but I but thought I'd say like that. It looks like he's laughing. Yeah. <laughs> it's much better than if you imagine him being very angry, right? Right, right. With those teeth. Sinister. <laughs> so that actually, these uh, golden Formosan bats, they're actually very small. I'm sorry, Formosan golden bats are very small. The males are about six centimeters long. Oh my gosh. That's they will really only weigh tiny. about 14 and a half grams. So my question for you is, if they're six centimeters long, how long is the wingspan of the... Formosan golden bat. Um, 20 centimeters. 20 centimeters? Mm -hmm. All right, let's have a look at the answer. Oh, wow. 32 so centimeters, yes. That's five times their, their length, right? That at least, uh, that's more cool. than five times yeah. their length. Yeah, it's amazing, right? That's Little great. tiny guy, but... That's moves, how they get around well, huh? Absolutely, they move very fast. They're going to catch those mosquitoes, right? Right. They have they to be, be faster, faster than, than us. Those, yeah. And those mosquitoes, too. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> All right, so in many countries, bats are seen as kind of like evil spirits or omens, bad omens. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, this is perfect time to do it, ghost month. But actually, it turns out here in Taiwan and in China, bats are very auspicious. Really? Yes. And that is because the name bat, bian fu, the fu sounds like fu qi de fu, uh -huh. which is good like fortune. That. Yeah, in Mandarin Chinese. Interesting. So my question for you is, what number is most commonly associated with lucky bats? Eight. Eight? Eight's a lucky number, right? Yeah. Uh, fa sounds like uh, good fa fortune as well. Fu. Well, let's have a look at the answer. So Ooh. you can see on this Qing Dynasty five. snuff bottle, you can count the five bats. You can see them in a circle around that. Oh. What looks like a long life symbol there. So why is it five? I, mean, I didn't know five was a lucky number. Excellent question. Uh, it is because Wu Fu, the five uh, good blessings. Oh. Uh, these are actually things like health, uh, good wealth. I'm going to have to look at the answer because I can't memorize it. <laughs> Longevity, which is what you saw in the middle of that snuff bottle there. Also, love of virtue. And this is a strange one, a peaceful ending. So it's sort of like life should come to a peaceful ending, not a like very uh, that's quick what ending. I, I think it's better than, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we all a agree with that. peaceful ending. Yes, we're happy with the five <laughs> blessings. So that's uh, that's 
what bats are known for. That's fascinating. I love this positive image of bats we have here in Taiwan. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope they do help us get rid of some mosquitoes, maybe a thousand a day or a few more than that. That would be great. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? please. (laughs) So, um, well, join us for our next segment, and we're going to take a look at what's happening on social media on Hashtag Taiwan. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, RTI social media guru Leslie Liao tells us what's trending in Taiwan. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Leslie. What do you have for us this week? All right, so this week we're going to be talking about Taiwanese-American basketball star Jeremy Lin. Now, Jeremy Lin likes to come to Taiwan after the NBA regular season to put on basketball camps and get in touch with his roots. Um, What you may or may not know is that Jeremy Lin is also a devout Christian, and this time he gave a sermon at a church in New Taipei City. Now, some of the comments he made during the sermon turned a couple of heads. What were those comments? Well, I have them for you right here. He said, rock bottom seems to be getting more and more rock bottom for me. Mm. I feel like in some ways the NBA's kind of given up on me. That's really sad. So like I said, these comments drew a lot of attention, and a lot of people are saying a lot of things online. Let's look at some tweets. First, we have NBA player Trey Young. He says, me having Jeremy Lin as one of my vets, I'll tell you, I'll always be a fan of him. Dude can hoop, hoop, but he's never <laughs> selfish. It's always about others and the team first. Oh, that's great. The real ones know, bro, I'll always have your back. You are not done yet. Hashtag mm. Linsanity. Now, it's not just current NBA players that have Jeremy Lin's back. Uh, one veteran, Dominique Wilkins, says, Man, I'm here for you, my man Jeremy Lin. Anything you need, hit me up. Mm. And I think it's also important to note that both Trey Young and Dominique Wilkins were part of the Atlanta Hawks team, which is the same basketball organization that Jeremy Lin played for before he went to the Toronto Raptors and won a championship earlier this year. Not a lot of people are able to sympathize with a big uh, basketball star like Jeremy Lin, but the sports industry for the most part had his back. Freelance sports writer Chris Walder writes, Jeremy Lin is an NBA champion. Jeremy Lin attended Harvard. Jeremy Lin has made a lot of money. Jeremy Lin is also allowed to be upset and or depressed, sans judgment. That's true. Yes. He's human. That's right. Now, a lot of Jeremy Lin's fans also uh, went to social media upon hearing these comments to comfort him. But I found one comment that really broke it down uh, big time. Mandy Xiao says, don't forget that the NBA is an organization that values business opportunities. The NBA's market isn't limited to the United States. Asia is a very big market as well. That's a really good point. That's true. Yeah. And if you're interested in seeing the sermon, uh, the full thing is online. It's on Jeremy Lin's Facebook page, and we'll also have the link to it down below. Cool. Well, you know, I think it was really brave of him to be so honest with how down he was feeling mm. in public. I mean, I think he was trying to be genuine and humble and not complaining like yeah. some people bragged, you know, about him. Well, I think that, you know, the NBA is such a culture of like, you know, trying to be like tough guy, right? And really kind of building yourself up. And that's yeah. what helps you win games, too. But I think for him, authenticity and the story, yeah. you know, even if, you know, eventually someday he's not going to be able to play, those will actually go with him through his whole life. And I think that's great. Well, you know, Jeremy Lin's entry into the NBA itself was just so groundbreaking. That's Broke true. a lot of records. For mm-hmm. Asian Americans, I mean, it's very inspiring. Very and I think so. he's a great role model for young men. Yeah. So, and he, you know, he also said that perhaps he may come to Taiwan. He'd love to come to Taiwan to play uh, with his brother. would like to come on our show, we'd love to interview That's you. That's <laughs> right. We'd love to interview you. We hope you come to Taiwan um, to play. That would be cool. Whatever you do, I'm sure, Jeremy Lin, if you're watching, it'll be great. Um, But thanks for uh, joining us on Hashtag Taiwan. 
do leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's edition of Taiwan Insider. Be sure to leave a comment below and connect with us on social media. Also, check out our show notes for links to today's topics. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So, and I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. Some people are saying U.S.-Taiwan ties are stronger than ever. Well, today to talk with me about U.S.-Taiwan ties is the CEO of DC International Advisory, Steve Yates. It's great to have you on the show and in Taiwan. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, what do you think about um, you know some people are saying that U.S.-Taiwan ties are stronger than ever? Do you agree? And, and what do you think of the ties right now? Well, I think objectively, you'd have to say that the the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is very, very strong and healthy. It's a, in my view, a time of opportunity. Uh, some of it is because of things that have been done in Taiwan and the U.S. But I think the largest factor has just been the dramatic change in the perceptions of China over the last year or so, in hmm. some of those actions by Xi Jinping, and just the, the the widespread coverage of it around the world has made people think a little differently about uh, engaging Taiwan. So they've gone from being cautious about if we engage Taiwan too much, will we upset China and lose opportunity? To wait a minute, I have to manage risk of dealing with China, and so companies like Google and Facebook and others are starting to say, "Well, maybe we need to be doing a little more in Taiwan to balance our risk of exposure to China." That's so true. So it's a very, very different environment. Interesting. A lot of those companies have actually come to Taiwan Correct. recently. I know that you're a Republican, a very mm -hmm. active Republican. Um, what do you see about Trump and his engagement of Taiwan? It mm -hmm. seems that he's really using Taiwan. He knows it's a sensitive issue between mm -hmm. U.S. and China. So is he using Taiwan as a leverage bargaining chip? I get a question a lot about the bargaining chip issue, and to a degree, Taiwan has historically always been a bargaining chip in greater Asian issues from the last century, from World War II onward. There's always been a bit of. Taiwan being a part of a broader strategy, which I think by definition makes you somewhat of a bargaining chip. Uh, clearly, it was a bargaining chip in the Nixon-Kissinger mindset through to Carter Brzezinski, and they were willing to flip on Taiwan in order to make a larger strategic play with China in the Cold War. And so there's a history behind people in Taiwan being concerned about this, but also just the reality That geopolitics, everyone is a chess piece on the board, uh, and so I wouldn't worry so much about that. But President Trump doesn't have any personal experience in Taiwan; has never visited. Uh, as far as I know, his businesses have never had any real direct involvement in things Taiwan, and so his thinking about Taiwan really became most active. Immediately upon election, when he took the phone call from President Tsai, and then immediately after that phone call, he gave three tweets that really were meant to sort of tweak Beijing 
about, well, why, do, why are you saying I have to have a one-China policy? The Taiwan buying defense articles is good for the American economy and good for security. And he laid down some markers. Uh, but most of his administration's time has been spent on the largest geostrategic priority that they have, and that's forming a different relationship with China with a new economic relationship at its core. So, well, there's a big trade war mm -hmm. between U.S. and China. Is Taiwan a bargaining chip at this time? Yeah. I, I mean, at least in my conversations with friends that are in government, uh, there's nothing about those conversations that indicate there's linkage in that mm. sense. I think my friends here in Taiwan know that I've advocated from the beginning of the Trump administration that, yes, he's going to take some risks and a hard line on economic nationalism and other kinds of things and rebalancing economic relationships. That should be an opportunity for Taiwan. Uh, and if Taiwan can make a broader proposition, not just tariff rates, but broader proposition about a, a new kind of economic relationship with states in the United States or with the federal government, and it sets high standards that help the administration in other negotiations with Japan, with China, whatever, there's an opportunity for Taiwan. And so I don't see it as a risk. I see it as a potential opportunity. And I hope that that opportunity is seized. Uh, and so that's, you know, the, the trade negotiations, whether it's really a trade war or not, is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Uh, it's going to go through the 2020 election cycle in the United States. And who knows how long it will go after that. Uh, so that, by definition, means it will go through the Taiwan 2020 election cycle, too. And so people here in every major party and every major candidate need to be thinking, what can Taiwan do with this as an outside factor that's not likely to change in the near term? You said opportunities. Do you think um, that the U.S. and Taiwan could have a trade agreement? I know yeah. that that's been brought up. I do. But I'm, it's been talked about for a long time. But I do think that the, the environment is very conducive to it. There are a, a significant number of U.S. senators that have taken public positions in favor of negotiating a free trade agreement with Taiwan. Uh, it, earlier in my career, when I was at the Heritage Foundation in the 1990s, there were several representatives of the foundation and people around D.C. that would talk about a free, an FTA, a free trade agreement with, with Taiwan. It never seemed to get any traction, and it never went anywhere in the U.S. Senate. You could get people in the House to support, but it never went anywhere in the Senate. But people have focused on the change in the Trump administration, but there's been a change in Congress. And in the U.S. Senate, there have been a large number of senators that have been very active on China issues, but also active on Taiwan issues. And the president has signed the bills that have made it past the House and the Senate and to his desk. And so uh, I think there's evidence that that opportunity is real to move in that direction. But I think it would be a mistake of thinking it as that that is the only way to approach mm -hmm. a new and better economic relationship with the United States. Well, I'm curious about, because um, both of us, uh, both the countries are holding elections, right? Mm -hmm. So on the U.S. side, um, how different is a Democrat and a Republican president in their policy towards Taiwan? Well, the best the best it could do is to kind of look historically. Uh, I mean, as a partisan, I'd love to say uh, some things. I would say all, all of my Republican colleagues are, are wonderful on Taiwan, and all those Democrats, don't trust them, don't elect them. <laughs> uh, but that's just, you know, I, I have my own bias on that. But it just analytically looking at Republican and Democrat presidents, from my point of view, as someone who spent half his life coming and going to Taiwan, I think all of them have been bad. 
it's just a degree of bad. Some of them have been less bad. There have been moments when they've done things that are that are great. But I think in general, American policy towards China has been almost un-American, and it just it's been too conciliatory towards China that we thought. By engaging and giving special treatment to, it would emerge as more free and more cooperative. And all it's well, all we've ended up with is a bigger, stronger, more belligerent, and more capable enemy. Uh, and uh, so, I, I, I really do see the Chinese Communist Party as the enemy of our way of life. I think that it's the enemy of the Chinese people's way of life. Uh, and that sounds. Stronger and more direct than a lot of people in China policy will, will talk, but I think the electorate that I was engaging over the last five years—that's where that's where their thoughts are, and I think they're more correct than a lot of the academic experts. So, in that context, uh, the Clinton administration had some good things as a Democrat administration and some bad things. The good things were uh, they did. Send several cabinet-level officials to Taiwan during the two terms of the Clinton administration. That dropped way off in the Bush administration, and there were none、uh, that, that came after that. For the most part, I think there may have been one tangential cabinet visit during the Obama eight years. There were there was the missile crisis of 1996. Uh, the Clinton administration sent aircraft carrier battle groups into the area,、uh, had a pretty strong show of support for Taiwan during that period. But then President Clinton issued the so-called three nos when he was back to trying to warm up relations with China in the run-up to WTO and other kinds of things.、Uh, President Bush, when he came into office, I was very proud of him speaking up about defense of Taiwan and do whatever it takes to help Taiwan defend itself, etc. But then he also, when he was unhappy with President Chun, he stood by the premier of China, and denigrated the elected leader of Taiwan, right by a dictator,、mm-hmm. and that just didn't ever sit well with me. Uh, that uh, and I know he was a better person than than doing that, so I, I think he got bad advice. But、uh, that was a that was a real stumbling block for for me in watching how the administration dealt with things. Uh, the Obama administration dealt, I think, very happily with the Ma administration, but it's really difficult to say what were the concrete results that fundamentally raised the watermark in how the U.S. and Taiwan deal with one another. And it, there, there wasn't a falling back. There wasn't a big negative to point to, other than when Candidate Tsai visited D.C. in 2012. There was a very conspicuous leak to the Financial Times that was extremely damaging to her as a candidate, and so I thought it was just an unusual way of the U.S. in a Democrat administration interfering in politics in Taiwan. So when I look at it, in general, conservative Republicans are big boosters of defense and deterrence, skeptical of China, and that remains true. Democrats historically had been big advocates for human rights. So when I was coming of age in the 80s and 90s, there were very famous Democrat members of Congress in the House and the Senate that were big advocates for human rights.、Uh, in recent years, that has changed a lot because being for democracy and human rights got conflated with going to war and advocating regime change and trying to impose democracy on others. And、uh, so. Uh, if the Democratic Party can revive some element of its tradition 
of advocacy for human rights, democracy, and things like that. And if you know, Republicans remain consistent with uh, the commitments to being against communism and advocating economic development and deterrence and things like that, Taiwan is okay, regardless of which party rises or falls. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the 40th anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act, I think there's been a lot of good, but a, a long way to go that we could do better, I think, from a U.S. point of view. Well, President Taiwan just recently passed through the United States and she got extended stopovers, like two mm -hmm. nights in each city. Do you think this is the U.S. way of showing their support for Taiwan and President Tsai at this time? Mm. It's very difficult to say what is personalized about mm. the U.S. government doing something because of who the president is. It certainly is indicative of the administration and the broader U.S. government's uh, comfort that extending broader opportunities to a leader from Taiwan is not going to create unnecessary and unexpected problems. Uh, I think anyone knows that by extending these courtesies to the elected leader of Taiwan generates angry letters and weird <laughs> tweets and other kinds of things from the min foreign ministry and other officials in China and the, the Chinese media and their sort of spokespeople in think tanks and elsewhere start to rise up and talk. Uh, so we know that there's going to be a reaction, but I think it just shows a, a, a significant degree of confidence in the relationship with Taiwan. Uh, and, you know, if you're elected president, the good things that happen on your tenure, you get to take credit for them. That's right. So it's not wrong for the Thai administration to say, well, it's because of her management of the relationship that the U.S. government trusts her. I just don't know that that's the motivation of the, hmm. the American officials that are making the decisions. Uh, and if there was a different president, I'm sure that the same kinds of decisions would be getting made because there is this growing concern about China. Uh, the trade negotiations don't seem to be coming to a resolution soon. Uh, the uh, Hong Kong situation has really been a wake-up call for a lot of people. Uh, the coverage of the treatment of the Uyghurs is very sort of surprising, shocking, but also unclear how kind of American experts and the, the foreign policy community are going to respond. So with all of that on China... I think that there's just a, a fundamentally more open attitude by American officials to say, yep, if the Democratic leader of Taiwan wants to come, then these restrictions should get loosened. Now, I, I would say I am a little bit disappointed that there was strong bipartisan support for the Taiwan Travel Act getting passed by the Congress and the president signed it into law without any adjustment or, or commentary. Uh, and that, so that, the, that is a bill that the sense of the Congress and the law of the United States said that elected officials from Taiwan and high-level officials from both countries can and should freely visit. So I don't think these things should be called transits anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't think there should be any restrictions. But, and I think the U.S. law says as much. Uh, but uh, I'm, I, I don't put that responsibility on the government of Taiwan to raise that issue. I think the Americans who supported those laws should be speaking up saying, well, wait a minute, who decided that it's only a couple of days and you can only have certain kinds of speeches? Uh, it certainly was more expansive for President Tsai this time than at any time since Chen Shui-bian visited in the early 2000s. So that's progress. That is the CEO of DC International Advisory, Steve Yates. We speak with him more about U.S.-Taiwan ties next week on Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. 
to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination Taoyuan, 1938. There are a few places in Taiwan where layers of history come together in unexpected ways. Often, these are spots where buildings from one era are simply taken over and put to new uses in a later era. One of the most unusual examples of this historical recycling is in Taoyuan in northern Taiwan. At the Taoyuan Martyr Shrine, the two historical eras involved do more than just overlap. They clash. Today, we're looking at a site where two successive and deeply hostile governments enshrine what mattered most to them. The Taoyuan Martyr Shrine sits at the base of Hutou Mountain. Today, the mountain is a forested peak crossed by steep hiking trails. But in decades past, it was a strategic place dotted with military installations and covered more in grass and shrubs. In 1938, when the shrine was completed, Taiwan had been under Japanese colonial rule for over 40 years. The shrine was a complex of simple but elegant wooden structures in which several gods of Japan's Shinto pantheon were to be worshipped. By this point, earlier pressure on Taiwanese people to assimilate into Japanese ways had accelerated and a policy called the One Street Village, One Shrine Policy saw many other shrines go up around Taiwan. Taiwan would come to have around 200 Shinto shrines. Under the state Shinto ideology of the time, these shrines were to be sites of indoctrination, while also replacing in some senses the old social functions that local temples had long held. The shrine in Taoyuan was particularly elegant. All of the buildings were constructed with plain, unvarnished, but highly prized cypress wood of the highest quality. According to Taoyuan's local government, these Japanese-looking buildings also drew on a mix of influences from China's Tang Dynasty and from contemporary Taiwan. The shrine complex consisted of a path leading uphill through the gate that marks the entrance to Japanese shrines. The path led up steps, past stone lanterns and lions, and past a bronze horse stamped on its chest with the imperial chrysanthemum seal. Finally, after passing through another gate, there was the hall for general worshippers, and beyond that, the inner sanctum, where only priests were allowed. Other facilities off this main path of pilgrimage included an office for shrine keepers and a pavilion with a stone trough of water where worshippers going up to pray would stop and ritually cleanse their hands. The gods worshipped inside showed the concerns of the times. Alongside traditional deities like a goddess of agriculture and three gods credited with creation, there was also a deified prince who had died during Japan's 1895 takeover of Taiwan. By the time the shrine was dedicated, in September 1938, Japan was at war in China, and in the following years, it would also be at war in the Pacific. Worship at the shrine would have continued until 1945, when the war ended and Japan relinquished control over Taiwan. 
The new Republic of China government that now took control of Taiwan had just come fresh out of a long and bitter war with Japan, and so it was not a fan of things Japanese. There was a move to eradicate symbols of the old colonial order, and the Taoyuan Shrine was one of the early Japanese-era sites to have its old associations stripped away. In 1950, it was rededicated as the Taoyuan Martyr Shrine. These shrine buildings were deemed too culturally important to get rid of. The quality of construction was high, the building materials fine, with handcrafted joints and echoes of China's Tang Dynasty antiquity. Like other martyr shrines set up in the post-war period, this shrine commemorates figures involved in the revolution that established the Republic of China. Alongside them are military figures, as well as police, firefighters, and civilians killed while performing their duties. This kind of repurposing took place in other colonial-era buildings too. Some old martial arts halls, for instance, were turned into police stations or facilities for the military police. But the surviving colonial buildings were in danger well after the war. After the Pacific War, the Republic of China government had retreated to Taiwan as communist Chinese forces took over the mainland. While ruling only Taiwan and a few other islands, the government continued to claim to be the legitimate government of China. Over time, though, a growing number of countries were rejecting this, cutting their ties with Taiwan and establishing ties with the mainland. After Japan did this in 1972. There came a directive to purge colonial buildings. The few shrines that survived after this were simply left to decay away. Though it had been turned into a symbol of the new order, even the Taoyuan Martyr Shrine wasn't safe. In 1985, it had its own near miss when Taoyuan's local government made plans to demolish the complex. It was a strong response from the public and from academics that helped to save it. Amid backlash, a renovation project was planned instead and launched the following year. After all of this, the Taoyuan Martyr Shrine is one of the only intact Shinto shrines left in Taiwan today. Its later listing as a third-class national monument ensures that it will continue to stand. As before, the shrine still honors revolutionary figures and those killed in the line of duty. But while no less solemn than other martyr shrines around Taiwan, there is less of a heavy atmosphere here than at, say, the martyr shrine in Taipei. Here at the Taoyuan Shrine, for instance. There's no military pomp or regular changing of the guard ceremony. Instead, what was once the inner sanctum and worship hall have been left to witness past heroes silently. The lower parts of the shrine, meanwhile, are an example of a historic space put to a new use. Since 2017, the area at the bottom of the hill has been turned into a cultural park, a place planted with flowering trees and towering palms. This has become a place where families come on outings, photographers set up tripods, and hikers stop on their way up Hutou Mountain. 
the local government has begun hosting a series of seasonal events here, marking the blooming of the cherry trees, the arrival of midsummer, the ripening of the fall rice harvest, and the winter lantern festival. Still, though, in the background, there are memories of the two periods of history that have shaped this place, from the worn chrysanthemum emblem on the bronze horse's chest to a wooden plaque in the worship hall commemorating the Republican martyrs that have replaced the old gods. Here, the symbols of religion and Taiwan's post-war years coexist in an odd harmony, jumbled together in a unique way that continues to attract visitors in our own time. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Now on to what else is new this month. It's Ghost Month, beginning today, August 1st. Now, Andrew, do you do anything to observe Ghost Month except eating guai guai? (laughs) (laughs) And Ali, I don't eat them. I put them in important places. Okay, okay. (laughs) Actually, no. What about you? I don't either. I mean, I, I... believe there are ghosts, but I don't believe they have power over us. I okay. believe in the spiritual world. I like that. Yeah. I like that. So I'm not too, too freaked out. <laughs> okay. But a lot of people actually do observe Ghost Month, and we'll be telling you about that, what Ghost Month is and how it affects people in Taiwan on today's Taiwan Explained. Today on Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you what Ghost Month is and how it affects people in Taiwan. All right, Nellie, we have 60 seconds on the clock. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Go. Many Taiwanese believe that on the first day of the seventh lunar month, the gates of hell open, bringing hungry ghosts to roam the earth. They look for food, fun, and even souls. These are ghosts who did not receive a proper burial or who have been neglected by their families, so they're hungry. On the 15th, companies offer food and joss paper to appease the Good Brothers. People call them Good Brothers to not offend them. There are also many taboos such as do not go swimming and don't get married or buy a home. These moves could be dangerous. But if you don't believe in ghosts, you could get a good deal this month. There are also many festivals. 
the most elaborate is in Jilong on the 14th, where water lanterns invite spirits to come on land to feast. And the month ends in Ilan with a ghost grappling festival where people race up greasy poles to catch food and a flag. That's how they feed and send off lingering ghosts in peace. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Natalie. And that's today's Taiwan Explained. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. (laughs) 